You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, August 10th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. As you know, legendary investor Warren Buffett shocked the financial world in May when he announced his company Berkshire Hathaway had divested totally of its airline holdings. Since then, investors have turned to the investing titan for inspiration and hope, but the Oracle of Omaha has been silent. He's been giving the investors neither as he sat on a huge and growing pile of cash that he was unwilling to deploy. He made a small acquisition with Dominion Energy and he bought some Bank of America shares as well. But this isn't the same Warren Buffett who pumped $5 billion into Goldman during 2008 or the Warren Buffett who became acting CEO of Solomon Brothers, for God's sakes. However, Berkshire announced its Q2 earnings on Saturday and the results may rouse the flagging spirits of fundamentally driven investors. Warren Buffett decided he wanted to put some capital to work. He scanned the investment landscape, all the stocks in the world, and he determined that the best thing for Berkshire Hathaway to buy would be Berkshire Hathaway. That's right, Berkshire bought back a record $5.1 billion worth of its own shares through June 30th. And analysts are estimating that Berkshire conducted an additional $2.4 billion worth of buybacks through the rest of July. Berkshire reported over $26 billion in net earnings for the second quarter, but it really isn't that rosy. As Buffett is quick to remind, this gap metric includes gains and losses on securities. And seeing as Berkshire owns over $200 billion worth of equities, this metric really isn't that useful. If you factor out the $31 billion in capital appreciation for Q2, Berkshire actually lost money, as even though operating earnings were in the black at $5.5 billion, admittedly down 10% year over year, the company incurred almost $11 billion in capital impairment, most of which were incurred on precision cast parts, a manufacturer of airplane parts that Berkshire acquired in 2016 for $37.2 billion. Revenues for precision cast parts were down 32.5% compared to Q2 2019, and as Berkshire noted in its 10Q, earnings as a percentage of revenues are expected to continue to be negatively impacted through 2020 due to inefficiencies associated with aligning operations to reduce aircraft build rates. This as PCC has already eliminated 10,000 jobs in a solemn restructuring plan. So it's a stark reminder that Buffett's exit of the airlines may have actually been prudent, even if, say, American Airlines is up 7% today. Oh, and also, even though Berkshire bought back at least $5 billion of its own stock, it was actually a net seller of equities in the second quarter by almost $13 billion. So it seems that while Buffett's confidence in the stock market has not been restored, the Oracle of Omaha's faith in Berkshire remains undimmed. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Ed. Good to be here, Ash. Always a pleasure. Ed, let's dive right in. What are you thinking about this afternoon? 
Yeah, I'm trying to put together some of the uh, the recent interviews that I've had into sort of a thesis about what's happening in terms of an inflection point or a potential inflection point in the market. And uh, I'm hoping maybe you can help me walk through this uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, it's Milton Berg, the interview that I did with him that came out today. And then I have another interview that I did on Friday that's coming out tomorrow with Charlie McElligot. And uh, the two of them really have made me think about the market narrative and what's happening right now. Yeah, I haven't seen Milton Milton Berg yet, uncharacteristically, and I'm curious to hear what you talked about Charlie McElligot with. Yeah, you know, I mean, let me tell you about Milton Berg for a second. Um, uh, what we can start with that. I think what he, uh, what we talked about is is we talked about the market uh, crashing down into the March twenty uh, third low and then coming back out. And then a bunch of buy signals um, uh, coming out for the market around June the 8th to the 11th, which is, by the way, interestingly enough, the, t the period where the Fed had the maximum uh, exposure on its balance sheet. Its balance sheet was the biggest. It's actually rolled off somewhat since that period of time. And the interesting bit is, is those buy signals, uh, they, they came at a very weird time, two and a half times after the actual low. You would expect um, the the buy signals to happen earlier, and and moreover, uh, the price action that's happened since those the buy signals have been given, um, it, it's been very interesting. It's been very uh, strange. So um, you know, he said that the June eighth of two thousand and twenty was the peak for a lot of markets, and you know, usually. Uh, he would be thinking about this as a turning point, but at the same time, he had a bunch of in, a bunch of um, markers that showed that actually maybe uh, it, it, you'd have a bullish sign. I think, for instance, he said this S and P five hundred five day breadth of that's ups versus down was three point zero to one. That's the first time that we've had that since two thousand and fourteen, which is which is a rare occurrence. That was right at that particular point, you know. So things like that. Um, so. Interestingly, um, since that time, almost all of the indices have actually uh, underperformed relative to what you think that they should do. You know, the Russell 2000 uh, has gained 0.5 percent, 0.56 percent, and it hadn't held its high. That's when I spoke to him last. Um, the S&P small cap index um, has held below that that level of June 8th when I last talked to him. Um, so. It's just it's very strange what's what's happened in terms of this. Uh, and one of the things that he postulates is maybe uh, it's it's not a buy signal, but it's a sell signal. A lot of these signals because the equities have turned from acting like equities into more of a commodity like market. So I'm I'm still getting my head around that. And I'm trying to think about it in the context of another interview that I had, which is going to come out tomorrow. So what what does he suspect now or what's his operating thesis based on what he's learned since June 8th about these signals? What do they suggest going forward for, for example, the rest of August and September, which is one of the time frames that you've been talking about? Yeah. So he suggests, as I said, that it could be that it's the opposite signal of what we think it is. I'm, I'm just looking at some of the drawdown numbers that he's talking about. I'm looking to see if I can find this in, uh, in some of my notes that I took from what he was talking about. Um, he said that, uh, you know, on June the 8th, that was the sixth time that the net upside volume as a percentage of, of total volume was greater than 40%. Uh, it was actually January of 1987 
that the, that was the last time that that happened. And then you saw a 25% gain on average in the 12 months after that. And during that period of time after the, uh, this has happened, usually uh, in the immediate following, you never had a drawdown of more than 0.8% until now, in which case the small cap um, was down over t- over a 13% drawdown uh, after June the 8th. And you also saw the S&P with a drawdown of 7%. So his thinking is is that this anomalous behavior at what would you would think would be a incredible um, you know buy signal is actually not a buy signal. It could be a sell signal because you have commodity like momentum building up in the equity markets. Very very fascinating interview, and I'm still trying to you know think about it and what what it means into this sort of. Um, September to October period that I always talk about, and Charlie McElligot, who I've spoken, I spoke to on Friday, what he talks about in terms of uh, September. Uh, very interesting. And and what are your sort of preliminary thoughts on how that does or does not match up with some of your thoughts about that time period, September October? Yeah, well, let me put it in the um, uh, McElligot uh, context because he was talking about uh, that. September to December is a, a pro-cyclical risk-on period, usually, and that um, he thinks that there could be an inflection point in September in particular uh, from crowded trades. And he looks at these all of these crowded trades. Let me just give you an example. Triple Qs, uh, options, uh, long is 97th percentile. Uh, of the data that he's looking back on. So that means that people are relative to the positioning that he's seen over a very long period of time, 97th percentile in terms of their optionality, their long optionality. And so given that that, that crowded trade, any sort of a pain trade on the other side could g- give you a, a very sharp reversal. And what he's talking about is the is all of these plays are actually bond proxies. This is where I get into what um, what uh, uh, you know what Milton Berg was telling me is is that maybe actually what's going on with the huge momentum trade that we're seeing with regard to the uh, you know long on bonds, long on gold, long on silver, uh, long on growth is actually. Uh, a somewhat bearish, if you will, economic trade. It's actually not a hugely reflationary, it works reflationary trade. It's more sort of a stagflationary or a uh, you know se- secular stagnation type of scenario. Uh, and and this is where I'm coming in. You know, I'm, I'm sort of just working this out live with you here as I, I'm thinking about it. But I think that these two interviews really helped me think about how to how to position this mentally. And so one of the things is, is if you think as McElligot thinks that it's a bond proxy, all of these trades, that means if you go from a bull flattening, which is what you've seen in terms of the, the bonds going long, to a bear steepening, all of those trades uh, will sell off, except maybe gold and silver. You know, uh, you don't want to be in growth. Uh, you want to potentially make a shift back into um, to value at that point. So very interesting uh, concept. And, and I, can, I can go on. I have a lot more to say about that, actually. Oh, please. Yeah. So <laughs> let me just say that, uh, you know, the way I'm thinking about it is that uh, 
what is the trigger to uh, a reversal in the momentum? This is what we saw today in the markets, if you noticed. I mean, this is exactly the trade that uh, Charlie McGallagher is talking about, is everyone is leveraged to growth. Why are they leveraged to growth? The answer, I believe, is, is because they believe that the outperformers like the Amazons, like the Netflix, like the apples of the world are leveraged to a new world in which uh, um, COVID-19 is still with us and, and has a market shift in, in how we behave. To me, that's not necessarily a world in which growth is, is strong. It could be a stagflationary, it could be a disinflationary or a secular stagnation type of world. I'll give you an example because I, I showed you this article literally like 30 minutes before we got on. You said you didn't agree with everything that it was said. But it was interesting from The Atlantic, there's an article about the coronavirus never going away. Um, and basically what it said is uh, the coronavirus is simply too widespread and too transmissible for it to be killed off permanently, except through maybe herd immunity. Um, and so that's a world in which uh, you have a, a continuous need for those growth plays because they will outperform ad infinitum in, in that world. Yeah, you know, and that ties into precisely what I've been looking at and thinking about today. Uh, there was news flow out on Saturday. Uh, Tony Fauci effectively said that the odds of getting a 98% uh, effective vaccine are bad. Uh, and scientists are hoping for 75%, though they would approve a 50% uh, vaccine if it were efficacious, if it worked, and uh, and was also able to get by the safety checks. Now, to me, this is a pretty extraordinary idea. The idea that you know 50% uh, would be acceptable and 75% would be good. This is not a magic bullet that's coming. And for people who've been thinking there's a magic bullet coming from the vaccine researchers, it seems as though uh, Dr. Fauci is at very least trying to manage expectations on that account and that there's a possibility that we're just we're just not going to get all the way there. And what does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for the day-to-day -day lives of hundreds of millions of Americans? It sounds like what it means is that we need to function in an environment that has less than 100% immunity from a vaccine which doesn't yet exist. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's not a world I think that uh, you should call bullish for growth, for economic growth. Right. Um, the bottom line for me is when we're talking about a momentum trade that's pro-growth and anti-value, meaning also anti-cyclical, to me, that's that's a, a red herring for the concept that that's a bullish outcome. Right. Right. So you would expect the industrials, the cyclicals, the banks all to be rallying if we were at the beginning of a new bull market, a new economic cycle. But exactly the opposite is happening. Yeah, I was so, going to say they're doing the opposite. You know, putting together what Milton Berg was saying with what McElligot is was saying, to, or will say to me tomorrow in, in the interview, is that actually what's happened is 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 that people are they're actually uh, not going with a a, a maximum bullish uh, reflationary scenario. It's almost the opposite in certain ways. And, and potentially because you're at the 97th percentile uh, long uh, triple Q options uh, in, in terms of this trade, there is a pain trade associated with this over the short term. There could be a flip, which we potentially are seeing, and that, that could extend in particular into September because, as I said, 
uh, you know, September to December is is a pro-cyclical risk on period. And I should also say that September in particular is a massive issuance month. So you could have a scenario in which rates back up. So you get a bear st- uh, flat a steepener and that causes uh, all of the, the trades that people have had to people to uh, to get out of those trades, reverse, reallocate their resources, uh, volatility spikes up. Uh, and, and and it's a very different scenario, at least over the, the short term. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah, you know, this is really interesting. As you're working through this in real time, I'm working through it with you. And it's it's a really interesting notion. It almost sounds like what's happening here is the outperformance uh, of these growth stocks is implicit that these companies uh, that are they're going long are short the call on the economy. And that is to say that they are leveraged toward the notion that economic growth may actually decline and that they're going to get a larger share of perhaps a declining market, but that may outstrip the decline. It's a really interesting thesis. Right. And, you know, and the and the way that McGilligan put it in terms of how he was talking about was a bond proxy. He said, what mm-hmm. if every single one of these plays is basically a bond proxy? That is, uh, you know, when, you, when you're talking about uh, a bull flattener, you're basically talking about the Fed being on hold forever. And the only reason the Fed's on hold forever is because growth is lower than the Fed wants it to be for a very long period of time. And what does that mean? That means that you have a substandard uh, economic cycle. uh, And these things are outperforming because you expect them to do, relatively speaking, better in that substandard world. Now, in the COVID world, that's a world in which, uh, you know, high touch activity is shunned and low touch, touch activity uh, it becomes much more interesting. And that's a world in which these uh, Amazons, Apples, Netflix, that they, they do really well. Yeah, I mean, this is really surreal. It feels like we're through the looking glass here, right? I mean, effectively, the highest growth stocks become a bond proxy relative to uh, to growth stocks, which are are less desirable under those circumstances. That's interesting and weird. Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, going back to what um, what Berg was talking about, he was talking about the relative uh, performance of all of these uh, these markets since the June eighth. Uh, buy signal, potential inflection point that he saw. The NASDAQ was, at the time that I spoke to him, which was, you know, when I first spoke to him, it was actually two weeks ago we spoke. But, you know, there's been some movement since then. But the NASDAQ was the only index that was up from that June 8th signal. It was up like 9%. You know, the uh, S&P small cap was down. The Russell 2000 was down. Uh, the Dow was down. The S&P 500 was, you know, marginally there. But because of its market cap weighted uh, nature, it was all because of, you know, the NASDAQ numbers that it was actually where it was. So basically what you were seeing was every single market since that June 8th period was down except exactly the, the companies that we're talking about right now. So yeah. again, if you think, okay, actually we're looking at a period that is not uh, bullish from an economic scenario that fits exactly. So this is where I'm putting, you know, Berg and McElligot together. Right. The the third piece of that comes out in terms of policy, the policy response. So what we saw in terms of Trump's uh, executive orders, yeah. uh, I, I don't think those executive orders are going to see the light of day. Secondly, I also think that 
there is they're not going to be effective even if they did see the light of day. All of the information that I've heard since is is that there it's smoke and mirrors. It's not really going to be a huge stimulus. So yeah. what we're seeing right now is an economy that is rolling over in terms of its growth rate because of the second wave of the coronavirus. And then it's getting a shock from uh, you know the pullback of fiscal stimulus in the United States. Uh, let, let me just jump in there to itemize for our viewers who haven't been following this as closely as you have. So effectively, there are four parts to this. Um, the first is providing a, a payroll tax deferral holiday. Those still taxes are still going to be due later for people who get this holiday. It's not everyone. If you're making over $104,000, you are not eligible for it. But that's a deferral and not a cut. Uh, extended enhanced unemployment benefits, but the enhancement drops from six hundred to four hundred. Um, and um, there is the senior administration. There's something uh, an eviction moratorium, but it only allows senior administration officials to consider whether evictions should be halted as a result of this. So, you know, whether you want to call it smoke and mirrors, if you want to be really uh, sort of politically correct, you might call it a, a compromise plan. But the reality is exactly as you as you uh, implied, Ed, that this is uh, this is going to decelerate from the fiscal perspective what's happening right now uh, in the economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that you want to play it from a, um, a political perspective, you know, Trump is doing this, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm hooking you guys up by executive order, you guys can't get your act together in Congress. So I'm going to have to do it, step in there. And right. the only people who are going to go against me are people who actually don't want to help you out. That's how he's playing it. That right. I think that's a very good uh, play politically. But the reality in terms of what actually gets done by these executive orders is very dubious, even if they were to see the light of day, which I don't think that they will, just yeah. because of the constitutional nature of it, You know, the power of the purse being with Congress. Irrespective, yeah. what it says is is that there's a lot of downside risk uh, yes. going into uh, September and October. Again, those are the timeframes I'm looking at for the downside risk to materialize in a market outcome in terms of volatility. Uh, and we'll just have to see what that means in terms of you know whether we get a reversal of these uh, of the momentum trade that has been working so well over Q3 in particular. Yeah, and and I should add to that whatever the politics uh, are or the optics notwithstanding, uh, some of my very smart lawyer friends have made the same point that you have. It's very dubious whether uh, this would be upheld in the federal courts. Yeah, you know, but you have to get to the courts first, uh, and then the question is: is uh, does it make political sense to go to the courts? Uh, we'll we'll find out in due course. But I'm yeah. not optimistic about uh, the near-term uh, stimulus that we're going to get in the United States. And so I think that there is downturn, a downside risk as a result of that. Yeah. It seems that everything points in the direction right now of downside risk. Everything that we've discussed, either a proxy for downside risk, a leading indicator of downside risk, an effect of downside risk, it just seems as though it's downside risk as far as the eye can see. Yeah. And, and so then the question becomes, what does that mean from a market perspective? 
Uh, does it mean that it's more of the same? Because I just told you that actually maybe uh, these these plays are bond plays, so maybe it means you get more of a rally. But at the same time, we, we're going to have a massive um, stimulus or massive issuance of treasuries. Uh, and normally, September through December is a pro-cyclical period. There is the possibility that I would leave open for a reversal of the momentum trade or just a, a, a wholesale pancaking of risk on assets to begin with. I, I'm still working out what uh, what I think where where this could be headed, but at a minimum, just from an economic perspective, I think that uh, there's risk of downside uh, and there's the risk of higher volatility going forward. Yeah, if you look at that one-year Treasury chart, there's not a whole lot more room for them to rally and stay positive on the yield front. We're uh, now at uh, I know uh, 14 basis points. Um, and let me make one last point on this whole um, thinking, where perhaps the toggle is not directional in terms of the market. This is what Charlie was saying, but it's it's more in terms of uh, gamma. You know, it's more in terms of increased volatility. That is the concept. If you look back to March and February, and you use you know a VAR model of um, deciding how you're going to allocate your resources, you know what kind of risk you can take. Those were high volatility months. Th those weeks uh, in February and March, you saw volatility go off the charts. All of those those realized vol months are in the back. Uh, they've fallen off of your VAR model. So if you are doing any sort of, um, you know, um, volatility-based VAR type of leveraging, then that means that any sort of trading that you do is going to see you leverage up as the volatility goes down. Vol control strategies or, or type of strategies. And the result, therefore, is, is just right now, as uh, you know, this potential inflection point is going to hit, people are leveraging up into the momentum trades. And that in, in and of itself will cause a massive reversal to the degree that volatility spikes up in, in September. And so the move, uh, even though it might seem fairly minor, could be aggressive as a result of that. Yeah. yeah. It's all market internals as opposed to fundamentals, which would drive that uh, that action. Yeah, VAR, of course, value at risk, a measure uh, commonly used by commercial banks and uh, other financial institutions to measure their total exposure at risk uh, uh, in their portfolios. And you know, talking of this reminds me of the other thing that I wanted to ask you about. There's a deep dive in today's Financial Times uh, about European banks. And the, the thesis of the article is that European banks uh, have narrower profit margins than their U.S. counterparts and are therefore less able to weather the storm uh, during times of, uh, of, of, of challenging economic times uh, and challenging uh, financial crises. Uh, what's not said in the FT article that I think is interesting is that, uh, as, as you know, uh, Europe is more reliant on traditional bank lending because of less developed capital markets. And the reason that this matters, of course, uh, is because uh, an, an impact on European banking uh, would have a much larger impact 
uh, relative uh, to the US, for example, on the total amount of credit available in the economy. And it is potentially something significant. I'm curious to get your opinion on this because uh, you've done a lot of thinking about the response to the virus in Europe versus the United States being largely more favorable. This is interesting because it's one uh, particular domain in which it seems that Europe is more exposed than the US during this crisis. Yeah, you know, and uh, uh, we were talking about this very briefly right before, and I think my uh, general take was uh, that Europe is more exposed and that's negative for Europe. Uh, but let me give a caveat as I think about this. So if you think about credit write-downs, then basically Europe is going to have more credit write-downs on bank balance sheets relative to their GDP if right. bad things were to happen, as opposed to the United States, where a lot of the risk would be absorbed in the markets. Uh, but you know th that's a double-edged sword in this, from a bailout perspective. If you think of all the money that the ECB is shoveling at the banks, or the whole concept of extending and pretending, you have more, much more of that to the degree that all the European central authorities are you know, trying to keep the economy afloat that allows you to continue to extend and pretend, whereas in the United States, the market-based approach means that it'll be you need active intervention from the central bank into those markets to keep them from uh, having a realized volatility. So an example would be that a company, a medium-sized company in Germany goes belly up or is about to go belly up, uh, it could be propped up by an evergreening of the loan uh, by Deutsche Bank in, in Germany. Whereas in the United States, it would be a junk bond, say, uh, that they issued. And then suddenly that bond would go down in price. It wouldn't be able to uh, renew the, the, its uh, uh, anything in the markets. You know, banks probably wouldn't lend to it because, you know, why would they lend? Because they're not evergreening a loan. So that company goes bankrupt in the United States, but it doesn't go bankrupt in, in uh, Europe. So, you know, having a markets-based economy uh, might mean that you have fewer write-downs on bank balance sheets, so that's less of a problem. But overall, I think that you're more exposed to market forces to the degree that the central bank uh, doesn't come in and start monkeying around uh, with those market forces, which they've shown they're willing to do. Yeah, very well said. So as you said, a double-edged sword for sure. You know, I know we're running low on time here, but one more story that I wanted to talk about. Uh, we have a chart of stock availability uh, right now, common goods, uh, household goods, and, and foodstuffs. This is uh, something that's caught my eye because I don't know about you, Ed, but I spent uh, about an hour wandering around uh, my neighborhood last night trying to get paper towels, and there were none to be had, right? I mean, we started out with uh, with a shortage on toilet paper, and now it seems like it's paper towels. They haven't been stocked in my uh, local pharmacy now for, for a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's interesting to see this as more of a national trend. It's not just something idiosyncratic to my neighborhood. Neighborhood. This uh, this chart that comes to us from the Wall Street Journal shows that um, that that there are a significant number of goods, and it's idiosyncratic in the way that it's being distributed. In other words, it's not distributed evenly. Some goods have worse shortages than others. But what's interesting to me is the aggregate number uh, is that typically there's a five percent out of stock ratio that's doubled to 10%, and that represents $10 billion in lost revenue. And in addition to that, I would probably argue that there are also some other follow-through effects. There's a sense of anxiety 
that is exacerbated when keep people can't get the uh, the necessary staple items into their house. I don't know. Is that something that you and your family are struggling with? Have you seen this as well? Yeah, you know, Lysol wipes. I think are they've said that they're back ordered. Uh, they won't be up to normal stock until January, and so we certainly we def, we think about those kinds of things. I mean, the way that I think about that from a global perspective, though, is that this is uh, what I would call the shift, uh, which would be you yeah. know higher inflation and lower growth, because what's basically happening is 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 that we're all staying at home, we're doing things differently, and therefore the supply chains have to move to where we are. That. You know, the things that you do, did it in your office space and the way that they got stuff to the office is different than the way that they get stuff to the home. And as a result, they're not the supply chains aren't uh, fully optimized for that transition. And during that period of time, we have the shortage. So during that period of time that you have the shortage, A, prices are should be higher and B, there's going to be lost output as a result of that. So yeah. for me, at a minimum, it shows you. Uh, that we should have lower growth and we should also have higher prices uh, in, in the near term. It, it points back to the scenario that I was talking about just now in terms of the potential for a, a reversal sort of uh, bear steepening, not necessarily right. one that is uh, you know, a long lasting uh, period, but one that's enough to get volatility to spike up and to also get people to get out of these crowded trades and therefore create a lot of uncertainty in financial markets. Frictions, inefficiencies, volatility, and transition, right? That's like the, the meta themes of what we've been talking about today. Final note, somewhat amusing story in uh, BBC today uh, about these websites that are piping in uh, office noise to people's homes <laughs> who are working from home. Sounds like printers, coffee machines, and people chatting in the background. Apparently, uh, these websites that pipe in uh, this background noise are getting hundreds of millions of hits. So uh, I'm sorry, millions of hits, but still, it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary thing, and it just you know it speaks to the whole theme of this conversation: bizarre transitions uh, and and things that are not business as usual. So why not? Why wouldn't uh, buy signals be sell signals and sell signals be buy signals? <laughs> right? Why wouldn't growth uh, be getting uh, getting more upside in uh, in this environment? I mean, it just all seems like it's of a piece. It's just an incredibly uncertain and unusual time. It really is. I think uh, to uh, end it on that note would be to say that we have no idea what's happening. We're all just trying to make sense of it now. Um, the question really is, is when will we get to a stasis period, you know, post uh, pandemic where we feel like, OK, this is how it's going to be for a relatively long time. We're not there yet. Well, no matter what the transitions are, the good news is you and I will be back tomorrow. That's right. All right. You'll be back tomorrow. I'll, I think you're talking to someone else. Are we both going to be back? I don't know, man. So much transition. It's tough to say. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Ash. Uh, we'll see you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.